Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Research Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Hiroshi Ota, Professor at the School of International Liberal Studies at Waseda University to discuss Net Zero Japan. With the COP26 gathering and a recently leaked document revealing the Japanese government as one of many lobbying for climate change to be taken off the UN agenda, I asked Hiroshi about the rhetoric and actions of the Japanese government in the face of climate change. Together we explore why they are reluctant to impose serious reforms to their energy policy and what alternatives exist for their dependency on fossil fuels and nuclear power. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning. Uh, well, good evening, Hiroshi. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Okay. Uh, I was trained as a political scientist measuring international relations. While I was a graduate student at Columbia University in New York City from the late 1980s to the early 1990s, I studied international security and international political economy. Particularly, I was concerned about the possibility of a nuclear war between the United States and former Soviet Union. However, when I passed the comprehensive exam and became ready to uh, launch research for my doctoral thesis, the Cold War ended together with the imminent danger of a nuclear war between the two superpowers. I was relieved from the tense feeling of anticipating a nuclear disaster. However, I became bewildered on what I should focus on for my thesis. <laughs> Then I uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, the issue of climate change due to anthropogenic global warming emerged as a global issues in the early 1990s. And the UN Conference on the Environment and Development, so-called ANSED, was held in Rio in June 1990, where the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was adopted. So eventually I chose the theme of Japan's politics and diplomacy of climate change as my doctoral thesis. Since then, I have been following this issue as my case study and teaching a course on global environmental politics and policy at my university. These are my uh, kind of background. I see. Thank you. It's quite interesting that you went from the global fear of nuclear disaster to the global fear of, of climate change. Is there a direct correlation there? Uh, no, but uh, indirectly related because I kind of read the uh, you know, doomsdays of nuclear war mm. and the Carl Sagan, you know, who kind of uh, uh, warned us we're going to have a nuclear winter. But uh, for the case of the global warming, <laughs> just opposite, we're going to warm, warming of Earth, and that will be uh, kind of uh, leading us to the different kind of doomsday in the future. Mm. That's so there's mm, kind of connection in terms of security, the global level, of yeah. scale, global scale security issues. And I thought, oh, this is uh, very big issues. And then I, I thought it is worthwhile. You know, spending time and energy. Mm. 
definitely. So you had an article published last year entitled The Analysis of Japan's Energy and Climate Policy from the Aspect of Anticipatory Governance. Could you start off by giving us a brief overview of the Japanese government's energy policies? Uh, what kind of rhetoric are they using and are they following their words up with actions? Hmm. Okay. Uh, I think I'll start with the uh, tenets of the Japanese energy policies, which was articulated by the Agency of Natural Resources and Energy of the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industries, uh, METI in short. Energy securities, efficiency, environmental considerations, and later added safety to these three E's, and thus now become a three E plus S. Like other OECD countries and emerging economies, Japan has developed its economy and society through a dominant techno-institutional complex, TIC, uh, TIC in short, consisting of energy, manufacture, and transport industries fueled by fossil fuels. However, Japanese or Japan's uh, techno-institutional uh, complex is embedded in extreme import-dependent energy insecurity, currently uh, occupying the uh, position of third largest importer of thermal coal and fourth largest importer of crude oil. Historically, this energy security focus was heightened by two oil crises in the 1970s, 73-74 and 78-79, pushing for diversification from oil through coal and natural gas combined with an uh, emphasis on increased energy efficiencies. Nuclear power emerged as part of the energy security discourse, with the first light water reactors constructed in the 1970s, tied into the challenge of ensuring that nuclear power plants operate safely in Japan's quick, uh, vulnerable geography by propagating the safety myth Anzin Shinwa. Besides, the government and power companies stressed the economic side of nuclear as the cheapest source of energy, putting aside the cost of decommissioning and disposing highly irradiated spent fuels and others. Subsequently, with global environmental concern emerged in the 1990s, Japanese policymakers framed nuclear as a clean energy. Unfortunately, the conditional logic underpinning this uh, framing manifests as a major obstacle for alternative development pathways in incorporating renewables as a key to CO2 emission reduction. Instead, for example, it resulted quick security and status quo solutions such as the push for coal and natural gas thermal power generation post-Fukushima accident. Likewise, this logic favors status quo nuclear restart when feasible and is shaping the emergent uh, hydrogen economy tied into fossil fuel infrastructure plus carbon capture and storage. These are the, uh, I think, uh, just brief energy policies of Japan, I guess. Thank you. You use the term anticipatory governance to refer to the Japanese government's rhetoric, a discourse which is all about preparing for worst-case scenarios such as nuclear accidents, as you looked at in your earlier research. However, you state that 
Policymakers take little interest in data relating to climate change impacts on local areas, being more interested in solutions which only give the appearance of making changes without much substance. Why is there such a gap between what government officials are saying and what policies they're actually implementing on, on climate change? Yeah, this is a very good point. You know. According to the energy agency, the long-term energy outlook is drawn up by ambitious multiple-track scenarios and a uh, multi-layered and diversified flexible energy supply-demand structure. At first glance, this approach resonates with the aspect of anticipatory governance that promote the idea of preparing for multiple future scenarios, including the unthinkable worst-case future scenarios, such as nuclear accident. This is foresight. The uh, interaction between the policymakers and public, which is uh, engagement, and the reflexive processes of policy innovation with a normative decision of the selection of energy mix should be uh, called integrations. These are the anticipatory governance. However, the actual Japanese energy policy and policymaking processes are far apart from anticipatory governance. I knew this gulf. <laughs> Instead, the article you mentioned intended to show that the stated policy rationale does not reflect the actual policies and policymaking processes taken. As I argue elsewhere, the combination of politics of the incumbent or vested interest provides a plausible explanation of Japan's national energy policies. The incumbent which seeks to maintain the status quo in opposition to a deep and rapid energy transition, forms a policy coalition consisting of concerned bureaucracies, the ruling party politicians, energy-intensive industries, and labor unions. Japan Business Federation, or K-Danlen, the cross-sector peak business organization, directly influences the policy-making processes of METI, Minister of Economy, Trade and Industry, and Energy Agency, as an essential policy council member. Above all, power companies, energy-intensive industries such as steel, cement industries, petrochemical industries, and power plants manufacturers seek to direct governmental energy policymaking. While established conservation, conservative uh, politicians uh, of the ruling party generally support METI and KDANDEN positions. I see. So it sounds like it's a combination of lobbying from energy intensive industries and also a lack of desire to be the government that institutes enormous change in en energy policy. Yeah, they really want to maintain the status quo. Yeah. And, I see. Uh, some kind of lock in in the uh, fossil fuel industry, I guess. Mm. So with, with COP26 underway at the time of recording, climate change is now on everyone's lips, now more than ever, with nations coming under scrutiny for their plans on reaching net zero emissions. In fact, it recently came to light in a UN report that a number of nations, Japan included, had been lobbying to reduce international political attention on climate change. Given the increasing severity of natural disasters in Japan, why would this be in the interests of the Japanese government? Mm, yes, uh Japan is undoubtedly a natural disaster-prone society, and people have began attributing to climate change 
for recurrent uh, torrential rains and powerful typhoons. The recent public poll showed that uh, people consider climate change the most imminent crisis. Having said that, the answer to the previous question partly answered this question too. Besides, we need to pay attention to Japan's bureaucratic politics. When the economy ministry consistently exert greater influence over climate and energy policy than the environment ministry, simply because the former has direct material interest to promote and protect. The economy ministry, such as METI and Ministry of Finance, when the carbon taxes are involved, have high stakes in climate change policy since their main platform requires direct control over industrial and energy policies. The Ministry of Environment and to, the, to a certain extent the Ministry of Foreign Affairs can obtain some concession from METI only when ruling political party pro-climate interventions become evident or when an upsurge of uh, pressure from international environmental movement tied into major negotiations such as the uh, Paris Conference, COP15 and COP26, raise the uh, profile and urgency of the climate change agenda. I do not know who is now in charge of or influential in the uh, negotiation for COP26. However, I can point to the absence of influential pro-climate and pro-energy transition politicians in the uh, Kishida or the uh, new administration. Taro Kono, a champion of uh, renewable energy and denuclearization, lost the LDP party presidential election in October to Fumio Kishida. Kono, together with Shinjiro Koizumi, the former minister of the environment ministry, became non-cabinet members. The departure from the cabinet is crucial since the cabinet meeting is the highest level of the governmental decision-making organs. Now, there is no influential policy entrepreneur in the government for the issue of climate change and energy transition. So we can you know, see that uh, Japan is kind of taking a, a very hesitant you know, role and then maybe kind of pressuring to slow, uh, slow down the uh, decarbonization uh, you know, uh, thrust. I see. So when you say we need to look into the bureaucracy of the Japanese government to scrutinize how energy policy is made and acted on, whose responsibility is that? Well, uh, the, you know, there's METIS and the energy agency, but certainly there's a, a co conflict of interest within METI too. Some uh, bureaucrats want to have uh, you know, uh, more uh, renewable policies, but uh, predominantly uh, the nuclear power uh, sector is influential mm. and supported by very senior uh, politicians. But uh, uh, you know, Abe Shinzo, former prime ministers, and then Amari Akira, who was who uh, kind of served for the Métis minister, uh, and I'm uh, not minister, but uh, served for, uh, no, uh, came from the uh, politicians uh, working for the Métis. And uh, he was strong advocate for nuclear energy. Mm. But uh, he lost uh, these elections uh, uh, of course, he came back as a proportionate representative, but uh, he, he was appointed first as the Secretary General of LDP, but 
because of his loss in a single constituency uh, uh, elections, now he resigned the LDP's the Secretary General positions. So I think he lost uh, some kind of uh, power uh, in, in terms of energy policy making. So I think there are some uh, changes occurring, but still, Meti is very powerful in deciding energy policy. I see. So it sounds like we've been talking about what the national government's interests are. I, I can't imagine that the local governments of areas like uh, Hiroshima and uh, the multiple prefectures in Kyushu, for example, which have seen disastrous uh, mudslides caused by torrential rain uh, over the last few years, want to maintain the status quo. Are local governments taking a different stance on climate change from the national government? Yes, I think so. Local governments are more kind of anxious and also active, try to make a very active role to play in order to uh, alleviate uh, the climate change, also to be able to adapt to climate change. But unfortunately, still, central government has a more you know, financial powers, and then local local power government has not uh, having substantial uh, you know, power to carry on the uh, real concrete policies, particularly involving in climate change issues. I see. Thank you. So do you have any sense of how the public in Japan feel about and respond to the government's energy policy and rhetoric? Uh, I mean, from what you've said about the results of the latest general election, it seems like those who were campaigning for greener energy seem to fare worse in, in the general election. Is that a reflection on how the public feel? Mm. Uh, it's quite difficult to uh, uh, quickly uh, answer your question, but I don't have any uh, sufficient evidence or the data to answer this question, but I came across an uh, NHK, uh, which is uh, Nihon Hoso Kyokai, uh, mm. Japan Broadcast Corporation's public poll of March 2021 on the nuclear policy. So only 3% of the respondents nationwide supported for the increase of the nuclear power plant. 29% prefer the status quo or nine power plants now under operation. 50% of uh, respondents said they should uh, decrease the number of nuclear plants and 17% wanted to abolish them. Another public poll conducted by the Japan Foundation in February this year on the governmental policy of the 2050 carbon neutrality more than 60% had a high opinion of it, but only 14.4% of respondents said that uh, Japan could achieve this goal. According to private opinion polls, voters' order of uh, policy priorities at the general election of October 2021 was economic policy. Second is COVID-19 countermeasures, social security such as pension, was third, foreign policy and security, then reduced disparities, measure against birth rate decline, then finally, decarbonization, nuclear power plants and energy policy. So right. that's the uh, general public concern with energy policy alone, mm. despite the fact that people you know, uh, see some kind of a climate crisis is imminent, but still talking about uh, concrete policies, People are not, not necessarily interested in energy transitions 
No, uh, <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah, but, it's, but, uh, <laughs> it's quite a contrast to what's yeah. going on over here with you know, all yeah. the protests we're experiencing in the UK. Mm. There's a very strong public sentiment against you know uh, yeah. inaction against climate. So yeah, 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 it's but talking about uh, you know uh, energy policies, uh, the Kishida cabinet adopted uh, the sixth energy basic policy on the 22nd of October this year. This is the most current you know uh, the energy policy. The energy mix of 2030 consists of 36 to 38 percent renewables, 20 to 22 percent nuclear. Now only six percent as of 2019 under operation. And then 41% thermal, in which 19% coal, and 1% hydrogen and ammonia. So despite the government rhetoric of mainstreaming renewables, the reality defies it. The government still considers nuclear energy one of the important baseload energy sources, insisting, insisting on its uh, low cost. However, many energy experts and critics point to the fact that the cost of per kilowatt hour generation by nuclear is no longer cheaper than solar, as the government itself also recognizes. Moreover, if the cost of new uh, safety measures, decommissioning uh, power plants and nuclear waste disposal are in included in the calculation, the entire cost of nuclear operation would be way too expensive. But still, Government stick to this uh, you know, nuclear uh, energies, and but because of maybe they are locking this uh, institution they created since 1970, and then they have a very strong you know uh, vested interest, I guess. So incumbent is strong. Mm. Definitely. Well, on that topic, I have one final question, which is it's slightly off topic, but nonetheless relevant to this discussion. As a big fan of Japan's onsen hot springs, I am well aware that the, that the Japanese archipelago is one of the most geothermally active regions in the world. So why hasn't geothermal energy received more attention as a greener alternative to coal and nuclear power? Mm. I love onsen too. <laughs> 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 yeah, okay, before uh, trying to answer this question, I, I would like to mention the current state of Earth on geothermal energy use in the world. Mm -hmm. In the global energy landscape, uh, geothermal is not the primary alternative to fossil fuel. For instance, as of 2018, the global geothermal energy production was 88 terawatt per hour, or just 1% of the total electricity generated from renewable. Mm. Japan was the uh, ninth in the top 10 nations having the most installed geothermal power generation in 2020. So in passing, the top five nations are the United States, uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, Turkey, and Kenya in descending order. So having said this, I think the uh, cost, locations, and conflict of interest are the reason, reason why the develop, development of uh, geothermal energy has not sharply increased in Japan, despite its potential. A geothermal plant facility is huge and requires relatively a large area so that the cost of uh, constructing it is pretty high. Mm. Another problem is the location. 
most of the land suitable for geothermal plants are in national parks. Thus, it, it is not easy to develop a large-scale plant to meet cost-effective in power production. Lastly, similarly, the uh, uh, suitable location for geothermal are mostly close to the hot spring lava spot, as many, including yourself, enjoy onsen along with the surrounding beautiful scenery. Hence, there are conflict interests between energy developers and hot spring resort towns and onsen enthusiasts. So the cost, location, and conflict of interest are the main reason why Japan cannot having more uh, geothermal power plants. I see. So it's definitely not a simple alternative to nuclear power. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, in Japan, you know, geothermal uh, only, I think, 0.2% in the renewable energy in Japan. So very small, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions, uh, Hiroshi. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Uh, okay. Uh, I'm currently working on the, another research project funded by the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, JSPS, about the geopolitics of renewables and governance of energy transition in comparison with the EU, especially Germany, and the mm. US, China, and Japan, with a focus on the case of Japan. In general, a renewable energy system can provide a state with energy security since natural energy sources can be developed within the border, not relying on foreign sources. However, there is already competition for the leadership to develop the next generation of clean technologies among these countries I mentioned in the region. Besides the materials necessary for renewable technologies such as solar panels, windmills, batteries, EVs, etc., are not evenly distributed globally. The supply of crucial materials, including cobalt, lithium, nickel, and rare earth, is concentrated in a single or very few countries. Cobalt, uh, rare earth, and thelium are mostly in Democratic Republic Congo, China, and Australia. In Australia, China, DR Congo, and South Africa largely produce the metals for lithium ion batteries. The production of metals for PV is concentrated in Japan, Korea, Canada, and Russia. China possesses most of uh, cobalt and lithium. So there's lots of kind of uh, geopolitical issue will be in, over the uh, those uh, very important materials for renewable technologies. Regarding energy transition governance, we, we need to deal with the heterogeneous uh, actors and different energy supply systems, or centralized or decentralized. I do not want to go into detail, but there will be a conflict between the incumbent of the current techno-institutional complex, as I mentioned previously, and the challenger of newcomers. Since renewable requires much larger area to generate the same amount of electricity as fossil nuclear power plants do, we, we expect, unfortunately, have more conflict between renewable developers and local people. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I can read in, uh, some, uh, uh, doing some initial, uh, the, uh, initial literature survey 
a kind of, uh, you know, they're suggesting that uh, we need uh, democratic decision-making procedures and participatory governance by respecting transparency, accountabilities, inclusiveness, and substantive uh, dialogue, and then fair representation, I guess. So these are the issues I'm uh, doing. Fascinating. We'll look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Thank you for joining us today, Hiroshi. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, thank you for having me. You can find a link to Hiroshi's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined once more by Dr. Paula R. Curtis to discuss historians and online harassment. Paula will share with me her experiences of being harassed by Neto Uyoku, far-right nationalists who seek to hassle and discredit historians for their critical approach to Japan's war history, as well as offer advice for researchers of controversial history who run afoul of nationalist netizens. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.